0: you are a part of the church. You are commissioned by the church. Your baptism and confirmation gives you the right to preach the gospel. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am not joined by Dave, the party, Van Vickle. I'm not joined by him because, and this is serious, people, right before we were going to record, he had to leave and cancel because Amber had to go get rushed to the hospital. So please, let's all take a moment and uh, let's pray for Amber, commend her to our lady and her protection, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, please intercede on behalf of Amber, grant her healing and strength in this time of adversity. Lord Jesus, we trust in you and in your matchless name we pray. Amen. Okay, so today's show is actually a talk I gave a couple weeks ago for the Archdiocese of Omaha, And it was for their rural parishes, as their wonderful Bishop out there tries to build a missional community approach to parish life. And you all know how difficult it can be when you're in small churches, rural churches, inner city churches, where there is no money, there is no staff. So don't have this be one of the episodes that you tune off because you're not a parish or diocesan staff. This was given for lay volunteers on how to build missional community. Make sure you stay tuned to our ad from Ascension. God bless those wonderful people. And I hope this Advent you are preparing to welcome Christ into your heart in a new way. So just like they said, a little bit about me, like I I was raised in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, suburb of Tulsa. My parents are from inner city Philadelphia in the forties and fifties where they grew up there. Um, My dad got a job in oil, moved him to Tulsa, and that's where I was raised. And we were raised in an incredibly anti-Catholic climate um, in Broken Arrow. Broken Arrow... uh, some people call it the buckle of the Bible belt. I've since discovered a lot of places claim that, uh, illustrious title, but the idea of broken arrow, there's Rhema Bible college, Oral Roberts university, these big Baptist universities. I would be driving to my small little missionary, uh, missionary church in, um, run by Polish Capuchin Franciscans. St. Anne's in Broken Air, Oklahoma, and uh the Ku Klux Klan used to burn crosses in front of our church. I would see the the I went to a public school for a while. All of my teachers went to Main Street Baptist Church, which I had to pass on my way to my Catholic church from my house. And you would see a sign that would be like seven-week series on Catholicism, the cult. So my own faith was initially informed by a siege mentality, which meant that in a lot of ways you had to know your faith. You had to know it. Um, because Nicole Newman on the playground in fifth grade is going to call me a Mary worshiper, and I'm going to explain to her how I'm not, and then we're immediately going to go into social studies where the teacher talks about the colony Maryland because it was filled with Catholics, and we all know what they think about Mary, and I'm like, I give up. There's a lot of things that evolved around my upbringing and my faith. My parents were devout Catholics, dad the Knights of Columbus, mom, director of religious education, so it was kind of in my blood, but my own search, and this is going to be true for all of us in some way, shape, or form. When I hit high school, I wanted to be anything but Catholic. Um, I did not desire it. People say all the time, oh, the only reason why you're a Christian is because of your family. My family uh, in some ways is a reason why I didn't want to be Christian, as many high schoolers would attest. And it really was me discovering the intellectual roots of the faith that challenged me. But um, so, and for me at that time, late nineties, early two thousands. It was, well, mostly late nineties. It was Scott Hahn, audio cassette tapes about his conversion. And then that got me into this whole thing. But there were, there were three things, three subjects that I heard Dr. Hahn present on that changed everything for me. One was, where is God in an ungodly world? And it was about the problem of evil. Cause that was the reason, how could you have a good God if all these bad things keep happening? It was like an eight hour lecture. It was awesome. Or eight one hour lectures. And so, uh, There was that. And then there was a, a series on the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Like, how do you live the Christian life? And for the first time I had what Christ did for me on the cross, what the meaning of his preaching and the biblical example, the biblical witness and how it affects me in my daily life, not just in my Christian identity or Catholic identity, but like how I tip my waitress, right? All the way down to the core really changed me. And then finally was a series called, um, what is the cost of the new Pentecost? And it was about a lot of people don't know this, but Dr. Scott Hahn and his conversion was pretty active in the Catholic charismatic renewal in the beginning. He still has some sort of affiliation, but he rolls Opus Dei now, but that was a big part of Franciscan university's life, especially back in the eighties and nineties. After Hahn's conversion, I encountered what I would say is the most, there's the strongest biblical theology, the charismatic movement, small C charismatic uh, of the movement of God's graces to build up God's kingdom. And those three things, so changed my life that I constantly come back to them over and over and over again in my ministry. I don't know about y'all, but I have a very strong tendency to over intellectualize the faith, right? What is RCIA? It's a series of classes. If you have good enough attendance, you get to become Catholic, right? Like we do things like that, um, because it's quantifiable, it's a knowable, it's like, Hey, here are these lessons. If you can spit it back to me in a somewhat coherent manner, we call it an assessment. You're good to go. Come on in, uh, into your, into the father's house kind of thing. But one of the things that I began noticing in reading the statistics, so originally I was in youth ministry, but I always had my heart for adult faith formation. And so I constantly was doing parent programs. I had the most successful parent program as the youth minister, right? And if you have a successful youth minister, they become the young adult minister and all these different things. But what I began to see across the board was as I'm researching adult faith formation, you would have statistics that would shock me. Like back in the day, it was 50%. One out of every two people that go through a year of RCIA are no longer practicing the Catholic faith after a year. You're like, well, well, what? what, what are we missing? What are we doing so wrong? that it so quickly is upended. All the work, all the, all the red tape and the paperwork and all that stuff that's so annoying to someone on the outside looking in that they had to jump through all these hoops. All of a sudden, um, you they're just done. And you begin to ask these questions. Thank God Sherry Waddell's book, Forming Intentional Disciples, came out when it did. It was very informative to me. I tell people it's the most important book written in the Catholic Church in America in the last 10 years because it hyper focuses on understanding this relationship between faith, between the life of the church, between what we are doing when we call it formation. Is it really just information? And that really, it really bothered me. And that's how, you know, the Holy Spirit's moving in it because it like angered me. Because I realize my inadequacy. No, no, no. If you just tell them what we believe, that's enough, right? And I would even go one step further and say, you tell them why we believe it, that should be enough. But uh, two things really kind of coincided. One is the personal investment into the lives of individuals who are seeking the face of Christ. You cannot avoid that, escape that. You cannot um, programatize that. You cannot systematize that. Why? Because people are crazy. People are weird. As my mother says with her Philadelphia accent, people are goofy. People are goofy, right? They, uh, as Sherry Waddell put in her book, people ping pong, which is a a theological concept back and forth between different places in their faith and the experience, the language that she kind of brought in with these different stages, thresholds of, of discipleship. But this notion at its core, Pope John Paul II would say something like spiritual communion um, as, you know, we need to form this spiritual communion, especially for unbelievers or seekers or people who are on the margins of the church. Pope Francis really crystallized the language around accompaniment, which is sad because intentional discipleship and accompaniment have become buzzwords. And then all their meaning has been drained to the point where they're almost like weasel words, which is an unfortunate thing. But accompaniment is something that is, comes from the heart of pastoral ministry, pastoral, another weasel word. Sometimes I always joke at, at my church, pastoral means loophole. Well, for pastoral considerations, Uh, with nothing matters. Right. So I'm like, but the code of Canon law is fun. When we step back and look at these things, pastoral means I am not afraid to invest in your life. I am going to walk with you through the process. I'm going to accompany you like Christ did to the disciples on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke's gospel. I'm here to open up the scriptures and show to you how they reveal the face of Christ and how that affects your life. When you start to look at it from this lens of my personal investment in you, that's where the, the Pope John Paul's theology of spiritual communion really takes root, right? You can, you absolutely can have spiritual communion in a classroom setting, in a small group, right? You can do that. Absolutely. Obviously, we wouldn't really have a church if you can't have spiritual communion at mass. But the idea of the communion is persons being for the other right being for the other i am not here to make you jump through my hoops these things that are, that are arranged are here so that you can so that you can number 1 have a, an actual worthy experience of your conversion but number 2 so that you these things can confront you And your conceit and your arrogance and your pride and all this stuff, the things that exist within things like the RCIA, adult confirmation, marriage preparation, baptismal preparation, the ordinary touch points that parishioners have in the life of the local parish, these things, the opposite, the prenuptial questionnaire, these are opportunities to both challenge and invite people into a deeper faith with Christ. Every piece of paper, I I always say this to my assistant, she is incredible. She has a charism of administration, which is to me as a flighty person, charism administration sounds both wonderful and awful at the same time. Like, What must it be like to not lose paperwork so quickly? But she has an amazing ability. She thinks in Excel spreadsheets, right? I do not. I do not. In my head, constantly, there's a a, a trained bear with a funny top hat on a unicycle and you just hear like that's just going on constantly. Um, But she is like systematized, organized. And I always remind her um, when she gets burdened by paperwork that the, the only thing that lets me be any good at competent or competent at paperwork and emails is every piece of paper is tied to a person. Uh, the former bishop or archbishop of Lincoln said that to a buddy of mine who used to work in the chancery office with him. I think that message is is powerful and it resounds, right? Like even the duty that we have to things like gathering baptismal paperwork and online registration and working with people and assisting parish priests and, and as a catechist and stuff, these things, attendance sheets, all of that, right? This is what orients us, um, as Sarah just highlighted in the chat, this is what orients us towards the other, Right, And every obstacle that we create towards a smooth transition, right? You go to the evangelical church, you sign a piece of paper, you go to a three week uh, welcome class, and then all of a sudden you get re-baptized and you're in the church. And then they come to us and they're like, it's going to take me a year, maybe longer. I have an annulment, two years. What's happening. Right? So the idea is right. We safeguard the sacraments. We worship God through the sacraments. So we want to make sure that people understand what it means To worship God, full conscious and active participation at the mass. It doesn't mean you sing really loudly. It means you worship from ever greater depths of the core of your being. You unite your voice to the voice of the church, right? I always tell people when you go to mass and you're expecting religious entertainment, you're always going to be disappointed. Number one, you will always be disappointed at a Catholic mass if you're expecting religious entertainment. Number two, Uh, you need to understand that it's not even about your worship. Oftentimes in more like conservative circles, you're you're not here to be entertained. You're here to worship God, like come here, bring everything, worship God. But that that's secondary. Even that is secondary to what is ultimately happening at the liturgy of the mass at every liturgy, of the mass faithfully celebrated, which is we are by the mystery of faith and baptism entering into the prayer of the son to the father. This is his worship that we get to participate in. And I say all this because what we are trying to do is build the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Michael Gormley, not the kingdom of the Diocese of Omaha or anything like that. We are building a kingdom that is worldwide, that is global, that is for each and every person, people, group, whatever. We are building a vast kingdom. And so in the middle of building this kingdom, we need to understand that the beauty of the Christian life flows from one source, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. His whole life is salvific, but especially that Paschal mystery that Jesus uh, that Jesus did for us, that he accomplished for us on our behalf, right? And if we enter into that notion of the Paschal mystery from the standpoint of the catechism, and I would encourage you all, especially those who love evangelizing, love missionary work, love service work, but the idea of sacraments and the hierarchy and stuff like that is difficult for you. Go to the catechism, of the Catholic church, part two, which is the celebration of what we believe or the, how we worship. You go into that and you read on section one, there's a whole bunch It says like the sacraments of Christ, the sacraments of the church, the sacraments of faith, the sacraments of the spirit read through all of those and it will light a fire in you. The very last one has a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas, where essentially he says, this is what the liturgy is. It gives to us what happened in the past, namely what Christ's passion accomplished for us. And it gives us how we live that life, namely grace, which was purchased for us by Christ and orients us towards future glory, which is how Christ set us free, not just from sin, but for God. And when you look at that, the reason why this matters is in parishes, the missional communities, communities that decide I am not going to be on maintenance mode. I'm watching the culture decline. I'm watching people decline. I'm watching families decline all around me, neighborhoods, all of these things. And the church is hemorrhaging young people. The church is hemorrhaging old people. The church is hemorrhaging. I am no longer, if you feel a stir in your heart, I am no longer going to sit idly by on in the stands waiting for a father who now has three churches in his rural setup bouncing between them. I'm not going to sit there like some NASCAR fan in the stands watching fathers zip around the track right now. My wife loves NASCAR. It's very painful for me, but she loves it for four hours a day. We watch people turn left. It's exciting. God bless us but the, the, uh, what's his name? The priest father, James Fallon up in Nova Scotia. He has this great line from the divine renovation. He says, we often think of like masses, like the people are in the pews or in the stands. We're watching the priest do all the stuff. The priest is like the driver. And he said, no, the people, you lay people, you're the driver, you're in the car. The people in the stands are the world. And the priest's And all of those in the hierarchy of the church, they're the pit crew so that you can keep running that race and be filled and be nourished. Right. And uh, have your windshield cleaned. You can do all that. The analogy for confession. You can do all of that stuff. Like, that's why we're here. We are here not to watch the priest run the race. But following Jesus Christ, the leader and perfecter of faith to get rid of every sin and thing that clings to us so that we can follow after him as Hebrews chapter 12, verse one says, right? He, this is the great cloud of witnesses that we all are surrounded by. So the number one mindset that we have to get rid of as lay people is we are not the church. We watch on behalf of what the true church is, which is the 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 clergy, right? The clergy are not the church. We all are a part of this one great mystery of the church. That's the whole point of the body of Christ metaphor. Some represent the headship in, in persona Christi Capitum. Some of us, right, are the hands and feet. Some of us are the beating heart. We have to see that if we're gonna advance the kingdom of God, it starts. it starts with me saying yes to Christ in the mission that Christ is calling me to, but second, to realize that I already have a home for that mission, and it's my local parish, and it's essentially from the mass of that parish. Right. So in um, in one of the documents of Vatican II called uh, Decree on the Apostle of the Laity, it talks about. I'm just going to read a quick quote. It says, "The parish offers an obvious example." of the apostolate of the community, on the community level, in as much as it brings together the many human differences with its boundaries and merges them into the universality of the church. Your parish represents the church at home with her sons and daughters, right? It is there on the streets. It is there in the neighborhood. It is there amongst the community. Many of your churches that are in rural areas have been there for decades, right? Um, I live in a new suburban church. The suburbs are growing, they decline, they're all over the place, right? But the urban and the rural share almost more continuity in terms of longevity and rootedness of parishes than many suburban churches, which, you know, my church is 20 years old, right? And there's a lot of goodness that comes with having a new church, but there's a lot of things that is lost in not having roots. So when you look at the church and you can see, like, I... There is a community of people like the people within this boundaries. This represents the universality of the church, even though we might all be, you know, living on one chunk of land in a section of Nebraska, this does represent the unity of the church. Some might be wealthy. Some might be poor. Some might be sickly. Some might be healthy. Some, you know, like we have all sorts of stuff that backgrounds and ways of life that people are coming from that all come together at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Uh, In order to worship and enter into the prayer of the son to the father, right? The fathers of the second Vatican council said this strengthened by the active participation in liturgical life of their community. They are eager to do their share of the apostolic work of that community. So when we talk about how do we live a missionary mindset, how do we live from the sense of mission? Number one, you're not alone. You don't commission yourself alone. You are a part of the church. You are commissioned by the church. Your baptism and confirmation gives you the right to preach the gospel, right? You can go to the code of canon law, the rights of the lay faithful. This is right there at the top. We have the right to spread the kingdom of God. If you look in Christi Fidesi, a wonderful document from Pope John Paul II, which I think everyone in this room who's listening should read the, the decree on the apostle of the laity and Pope John Paul II's, um, Chris Fidesleici. Christe laity is great because it's all to us, the vocation and mission of the lay apostolate, but within it, the lay faithful, but within it, they talk about how do I engage with the liturgy, with my clergy, with the archdiocese or diocese, right? How do I do this? It lays it out. Like, what is the limits? Because as lay people, one of the things that I find is the moment you get like a zeal for the faith, you... We, we, not you, we tend to collapse the distinction between clergy and laity and we want to become quasi priests or quasi deacons. And I say this because the Vatican II like bent over backwards to preach to the laity, our role, our mission, the charge that we have. And it's, I, I say this all the time when people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We are the priestly people, the kingly people, right? We are a nation of Royal priests, right? We are going to go out and preach the gospel. And then we went outside and we're like, oh my gosh, they all hate us. Everyone out here hates us. And we do a U-turn and we're like, like, can I be a sacristan? Can I be an extraordinary minister of Holy communion? Can I be a lector? Can I like, just like do anything where it's safe and comfortable and everyone in here believes what I already believe. So I don't have to, uh, uh, you know, uh, be challenged or whatever, or hated or whatever. But that, that's why Jesus says, right. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. Right. Just accept that. Right. He says the world will hate you, but take courage for I have conquered the world. So a missionary community is one that sees inside the parish my place my home where i am fed where i am nourished the pit stop the pit crew right that that uh prepares me for the battle but then i turn my gaze at those doors And when you hear the words, Ite Misa Es, the very word of the mass comes from the dismissal at the end of mass in Latin. Go, you are sent. I realized in that moment, this is the apostolic charism of every single member of the church. The church is one holy Catholic and apostolic. The Catholicity of the church means it is meant for the whole world. The apostolicity of the church means I am sent now to go out. I'm not a bishop. I'm not the successor of the apostles with the charism of governance. No, but I am one who carries within myself the gospel, the saving love of Jesus Christ. I was just nourished by that saving love in the Eucharist. And I look out the door and that is mission territory. That is a mission territory. And when you walk out the door, here's the deal. You can't go alone. If you look at the record of Jesus Christ starting pre-resurrection, what did he do? He was doing these, he was an itinerant preacher. He's going from town to town to town to town. He had a home base in Capernaum. He had a, a John reveals us he had a pretty developed ministry in Jerusalem as well and in Bethany and in the surrounding area. But one of the key things you realize is before Jesus can make it to a town, he takes and commissions his disciples 7072 he commissions them and sends them out 2 by 2 they don't go alone why do we why are we so alone? I, I do this all the time. When Jim read my description at the beginning, it said the founder and creative director. I added creative director because it just sounds like uh, I made a website 12 years ago that I've updated like three times. So I was like, oh, I'm the creative director. <laughs> I totally sold that from Brandon Vaught at Word on Fire. Um, I mean, he actually is the creative director for Word on Fire. I just pretend to be. But uh, the idea is like my apostle is just me alone. And that's where it becomes, uh, and I I want to speak honestly to everyone listening, there is a, a damnable temptation within evangelization that you get so lost in the work, you adopt a savior complex. Instead of pointing to the savior, you think you're the savior. That's why there are so many lay people who hate the clergy. It's because they're working tirelessly, they're doing all this stuff, and they become resentful of, of the, you know, even the the charism and grace of holy orders, there's this element of resentfulness, but it becomes about the work that I am doing. Rather than giving glory to the God of works, we looked at God and say, look at all my works. And, and that is so anti-catholic and it is such a subtle temptation of the devil to corrupt the good things that you are doing okay so how do we prevent the devil from corrupting the good things that we're doing i know i'm going fast am i going too fast should i need to slow down do i need to do i need to speed up like i'm about to take a left turn in nascar okay so When we look at this, you and I uh, forming missional communities, you understand that the church is universal, meaning every person should belong to the Catholic church. I'm going to say that again. Every person should belong to the Catholic church. Number two, your hope and desire is to see the people around you brought into the fullness of the Catholic church, because that means that they have a union, a relationship, a communion with God and with you. So you are willing as an individual to invest in others. Now, this is where we ensure that we aren't uh, being pulled away from the works of Satan. Every charism, the catechism says, needs to be passed through the hands of the shepherds of the church. What I mean by that is the parish community, first and foremost, Christe Fedele is key here, can help you take your charism and unite it to the already existing mission of the local parish. That's number one. Number two, there are things within your diocese, part of the apostolate of the laity means that we're not just tied to a particular parish, but we can work within the larger diocese. We can be a part of international movements, national movements. So the idea is stepping into those places that the church has called for the formation and evangelization, um, we can step into it. Don't reinvent the wheel. I do prison ministry. I joined an already existing ministry because I'm a terrified former homeschooler, theology major from the suburbs. I know nothing about working with life offending gang member, ultra violent people. So I'm like, hey, you group of 20 men who have been doing this for years. Can I join you? Right. Actually, I didn't say that. they told me that I was joining them and they signed me up and I got voluntold. I'm sure this never happened to you, but uh, don't do it alone. And that's what safeguards right at the parish. Don't do it alone right? So it comes from the sacramental graces that we receive in the mass, but also it flows from the first missionary territory should be the low hanging fruit in the Catholic church. Let me give you a, for instance, I was in Canada uh, in January, I think it was January, and I had done an event up there and I was at a local high school and I was talking with the theology teacher. He says, when I started, I had 33 kids in my theology class, my junior theology class. This year, 15 years later, I have 33 kids in my junior theology class. So, okay, and he said, when, and he said this shocked me. He said, fifteen years ago, thirty out of the thirty-three went to mass every Sunday. Now it is three out of thirty-three. He's like that. That the whole thing is. What, and then every theology teacher and the the priest chaplain of the school said, this is what we're seeing across the board. Okay, so we have to realize that those are in, the people in mass. The vast majority of them are not committed. Have not given a lifelong commitment and personal adherence to Jesus Christ. That's the low hanging fruit of the mission field. I don't even have to look out the door. I can look to my left and right and see that there are mission territories. Okay. So I'm going to give you right now what I call my three levels, three paths of missional community, and they are varying degrees of intensity. Okay. These are varying degrees of intensity and it's going to get crazy all righty we're gonna take a brief pause to hear something awesome from our friends over at ascension press when we come back we're gonna spend about 10 minutes going through those three intense things but i would be remiss if i didn't give you a call to action email us at eksb at ascensionpress.com if you have any questions or comments uh and we can treat them on our upcoming q a shows that we'll do later on this month What if this year your Advent could be different? What if you could learn how to welcome Jesus into your heart from the people who did it first? This year, Ascension's Rejoice Advent Journal invites you to experience Advent with Joseph and Mary as they await the birth of their son Jesus, the Savior of the world. Together with the guided meditations found on rejoiceprogram.com, this journal will help you to see the marriage of Mary and Joseph in a new light You will ponder what was in their hearts and minds as they awaited the birth of Jesus. Rejoice will help you open your heart to the peace and the joy of the Holy Family as you prepare for the coming of Jesus this Christmas. Visit rejoiceprogram.com to purchase your copy today. So number one, this is where all the money is. Okay, this is where all the publishings are. This is where all the cash money is in the Catholic publishing world. Uh, Reforming the parish to be a charismatic, welcoming, and inviting community. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, it means looking at your parish and saying, okay, well, we want to offer a Discover Christ series. We want to do landings for Catholics who are coming back to the church. We want to offer programs and events and ministries that cater to the whatever percent, 80% who come to Mass once a month or once a year. Right. We want to offer a thing for them. And then this is where the priest and uh, people who do the, the catechist, if you have a DRE or whatever it might be, this is where they start saying, OK, we need to preach the gospel more explicitly and more often This is what we call the charismatic. The charisma is a Greek word that just means um, to proclaim. And this is where you start looking at things and say, well, when do we ever share the good news of Jesus Christ with people? Well, let's be more systematic about that. So homilies need to be more charismatic. Sacramental prep needs to be more charismatic. When priests meet with couples in marriage crisis, they need to be more charismatic so that these are the low hang fruit. And then, so it, I said charismatic meaning we start preaching the gospel. They become welcoming. We start creating space for outsiders within our parish community and then inviting that's when the lay people say, okay, when I'm out in the world, I'm going to actually look for opportunities to invite people to the parish right pope benedict or pope uh, francis in a really funny moment he was preaching to the seminarians in rome and he said um you know when you go and become parish priests, you must remember that you have to create welcoming parishes and then he stopped himself and he goes i didn't mean welcoming i didn't mean welcoming you need to create inviting parishes which means your people are outside and they are inviting outsiders inside which presupposes that you're already welcoming so think about this Is your parish a welcoming place, right? Uh, Does does the priests and homilies, are they charismatic? Do they preach a basic gospel message? Are you as a volunteer looking for ways to bring the Paschal mystery right down into the core of family formation, faith formation, individual formation, whatever it might be? Are you investing and involving the local lay people in the parish? to receive the good news of Jesus Christ, because here's the deal. We presume they have, we assume they have, but vast majority of them are sacramentalized and have never been evangelized. The vast majority of our sacramentalized people aren't even catechized, right? And so we have to really address this and own it. Okay, that's the first step. That's where you're gonna get books like Divine Renovation, Rebuild, uh, you know, uh, Great Catholic Parishes, uh, Forming Intentional Disciples. That's where this kind of comes in. How can our parish become a place where disciples are formed okay next step this is the next layer of intensity this is where the priests and lay people say okay i want to actually affect change here i want to be a part i believe i should play a part in evangelization and so this is where you intentionally start developing evangelizers you teach about the task of evangelization and this is the hardest part and this is the part that i stink at you identify people with the charism of evangelization because the Holy Spirit will grace individuals with a specific charism of evangelization. Uh, There's a wonderful program that Sherry Waddell started called called and gifted, which is eventually what led to forming intentional disciples, but called and gifted is about identifying those charisms that the Holy Spirit has given to every believer who has a living faith for the manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit and the growth of the kingdom. Right, that's what charisms are for. Charisms are non-salvific for yourself. That's what sanctifying grace is for. But the charisms enable you to lead other people to faith. So we want to help. If you have a charism of teaching, we want you to be a catechist. If you have a charism of evangelization, we want you to be a catechist. But maybe there are new opportunities that that an evangelist should be pushed towards that can bring people into the church. When we start to do this, we also have to remember that not everyone has a charism of these things. But we all have the task. We all do. You're priest, prophet, and king, brothers and sisters. You have the task of making Christ the king known and loved, right? Known and loved. To let people know that they are known and loved in Christ Jesus and to help them know and love Christ himself. So that's the second level. So number one is like you start reforming some, the more institutional stuff, right? Remember when Pope Francis said everything, all that the church has has to be changed by the new evangelization, right? Like even your schedules and the way we do things, right? That's the step one, being welcoming, being inviting preaching the gospel over and over again. Step two, identifying what are the tasks of an evangelist and of evangelization. What is the difference between the old evangelization and the new evangelization, right? The mission ad gentes, all these different things. What is, how do they relate to catechesis? That's forming. And then you got to find out, okay, which one of you has these charisms, not just evangelization. There are supporting charisms that help that, charisms of hospitality and, you know, whatever, teaching and stuff like that. So we got to start discerning amongst us, and you, you have to have community and, the, and, the, and an openness to the Holy Spirit to be willing to do that. Now, number three, and this is the one that none of you are going to do except a couple radicals, okay? Now, this breaks my heart, okay, because I'm telling you, this is the stuff that you read about happened 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and it changed an entire nation or the church in general, but we are afraid to do this. Everyone who hears this might want to do this to some level, but you probably won't. But I'm telling you, this is it. And here it is. Okay. We have to ignite those who really want to live a missional community. What do I mean by that? You have to find people who want the spread of the kingdom. These might not be people who are evangelists. These might be people who are intercessors, people who are prayer warriors that, you know, a little old man, a little old lady with a rosary that constantly prays for people. You want to bring them into your circle. It's not just about being the cool kid with the skinny jeans who know how to use the Twitters. That's evangelization or that's the new evangelization. No, it's about recognizing in this cultural situation of post, post-Christianity how to speak the gospel into their despairing hearts, right? Okay, but here's the deal. This is why we don't want to do it. Form a group, three, four, six, eight people, pray together for a couple hours, share meals together, share your income together, and confess your sins to one another. Right? we don't want to do this, but imagine what happens when you like we do small groups, right? think of small group ministry. okay, I'm in a small group. Where we can hold each other accountable accountable to what? Attendance at the small group, right? like doing the homework of the small group. What if we held each other accountable for our sins? Now, I'm not saying this replaces sacramental confession. don't be don't be silly. If you involve a priest in this, it I mean like you can go to confession, right and uh, talk but this is like imagine a community where people are unafraid, to share their epic and most secret struggles. I'm afraid to do that. Have you met people? They're terrible. Why would I want to share my struggles with them? They would use it against me. That's why we don't do this. But imagine this, and we just prayed fervently for each other. And throughout the week, we talked to each other, and we called each other on, and we went to mass together. And It's not a cult, although sometimes it gets that way. But what we do is we just Pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and for a chance and opportunity to make the gospel known. I walked with uh, about 45 people, and I came the closest with this in a parish setting. I taught a thing called Catholic Evangelization 101. We met for five weeks in a row. And every week, after I would teach them through uh, another principle, the gospel, whatever it might be, I had them all say who is the one person in their life that they wish knew Jesus Christ's love for them and why. And I'll tell you, that ended up being half the meeting. And then every week at the end of the meetings, we would all pray for each other for that person to maybe. So what we did was the first two weeks, we prayed for opportunities for the Lord to move in their heart, to call you, to reach out to you, to have a chance encounter with you. It was a brother that I haven't talked to in 10 years. My daughter, you know, most of them, it was a baby boomer group. And a lot of them were saying like my adult children who left the church. And so for two weeks, we prayed and prayed and prayed for people to have where the Lord would move their heart to be open to receiving the gospel, whether it was us or someone else. And then the third week, I said, now we intercede for each other so that we would be bold to make that decision. Can I tell you what happened? What happened was a woman who hadn't talked to her daughter in like 20 years the daughter called her out of the blue, out of the blue and said, my marriage is falling apart. How do I get back to church? Another man picked up the phone and called his estranged brother and the brother hated him. He answered the phone. They reconciled the relationship. The brother is back into church, right? Like you start to see the manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit because you have a group of people who are not going to let the shame of sin hold them back from speaking the truth first to themselves and repenting. And then as a community be like, have you called your brother this week? Have you called your brother this week? I'm going to do it. I'm going to, okay, I will pray for you. I'm going to go to the church and I'm going to adore the blessed sacrament for you. And I'll do it from seven to 9 PM. People did this for each other. Can you imagine what happens in a community when people did this? Now, the next time I offered the class, I couldn't do it over the five weeks. I did it as one group on a Saturday, like all day Saturday. And it was terrible because we couldn't do the weekly processing. We couldn't do the prayers, but something else happened. I invited a buddy with a youth group to come down. So it was baby boomers and high school students. And I said, everyone get a partner because we don't go alone. And I want two older people to team up with two young people and to share your testimony and to speak the Lord into each other's life. And I left for, and I was just giving them 30 minutes to do it. I came back 30 minutes People, teenagers were praying over the adults. The adults were sobbing like like conversion happened in that area because we put the gospel first. We put prayer first. We put the community first over and above even my embarrassment, sense of shame and all this stuff. And what ends up happening is you don't give permission for the Holy Spirit to work the holy spirit dumps gasoline on your heart and sets you on fire that is the important part of all of this stuff so in our don't think oh we're rural we're not a parish we're not the big suburb or big urban parish with lots of money and we can hire fancy people people like me who are fancy people that parishes like hire and all this stuff all i am all i do is i'm just a catalyst the actual work is done by the people in the parishes you can't don't don't hire a, a fancy person call up the charisms that are surrounding you brothers and sisters you're it jesus made you listen to this talk today so that you can start a missional community in your parish and win souls for christ all righty god bless